Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, special guest Heritage Foundation's Dakota Wood joins the roundtable as we discuss tragedy in the air over the Ukraine as Russian separatists down Malaysian Air Flight 17 killing all 298 on board. We'll have the latest. War on the Gaza Strip. Are the consequences worth the cause? Putin in the crossfire, his involvement in Crimea, his failing economy, and now the recent actions in Ukraine. Can his political machine save him in this international community? Technology that promotes political transparency. The founders of OpenGov Foundation joins us to talk about their technology and their initiative. This is Tell Me a Story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political roundtable you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former congressman representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hi, Congressman. Hi. I'm, I'm, excuse me. I was trying to steal your cigar there, and you got me all flustered when you caught me. Yes, it. I know. It's, it's Tuesday. It's normal. And to my 9 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here again. And to my 12 o'clock, directly across the extended table, she is the former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Maritime Administration, former House Counsel for the House Homeland Security Committee under Betty Thompson. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hi, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to her left, she he is the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, former executive director of the great state of Maryland's Democratic Party, Washington Insider, Carl Tuvin. Hello, Justin. And to my 2 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce. He served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Senate insider, Longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, folks. And to my right, ironically, he is longtime Democratic lawyer and political operative, insider here in Washington, Dan Lipner. Hi, Dan. 
Hi, Justin. Why am I not as handsome as Alan? That's what I want to know. You, you know what? You two worked that out. You're sitting next to each other. Hey, we've got a lot to talk about. But joining us for the show today, since we have a lot of stuff that's kind of in his bailiwick, he is our friend. He is the former lieutenant, or retired lieutenant colonel, U.S. Marine Corps. He is former congressional candidate out of Oklahoma 2nd District, and he is now a senior fellow over at Heritage Center or Heritage Foundation. He is Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood. Dakota, welcome back to Shelly. Very good to be here. Oh, we love having you. We have got a huge show to talk about. Everything happening. We're going to start off right now talking about the latest coming out of Israel. Uh, the offensive has gotten into a ground move. The Israelis are making a very strong push into Gaza City and the outlying areas. Uh, but it has gotten even more complicated. This morning, a Delta Airlines flight from JFK into Tel Aviv was diverted back to Paris after it took debris from rocket fire in Gaza, or in, in Israel, rather, thus causing the FAA and other governments to cease operations for commercial flights into Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv has now been essentially cut off from commercial air traffic as a result of the offensive. Also, at the same time, the tunnel initiative by, by the, uh, uh, the rebels in, Pal or in Palestine, in Gaza, they are continuing to tunnel into and making assaults into Israel, which has caused an even further in-depth ground assault by the Israeli Defense Forces. This has turned into a quagmire. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, has made every indication that he will not stop until the rocket fire and the tunnel assault stop from Gaza, and the Palestinians are not backing down. They continue to have operative brigades entering into Israeli territory through these tunnels. Dakota, you've been following this region for a long time. Benjamin Netanyahu has said consistently that he is not going to back down. President Obama has backed President Netanyahu, or Prime Minister Netanyahu by saying in a somewhat cautious tone, as long as rockets are being flown into your sovereign territory, you have the right to defend yourself. Is, could this thing escalate even worse than it's already gotten? Do you envision an escalation by the Israelis to quash this latest movement in Palestine? I think the Israelis will continue with what they're doing, whether that's an escalation or not, it's open for debate, but they'll continue the pressure because Hamas uh, has adopted a position that it can't back down from. It's the elimination of Israel. Uh, they view that their mandate is not just a Sunni, uh, Muslim, uh, or, a, or a Palestinian thing, that uh, really it's a cause on behalf of all of Islam. So once you take in such an extreme position, you can't just stop halfway. Um, they've been stockpiling rockets. We had the tunnels out of Egypt when that was cut off, uh, when the Muslim Brotherhood was kicked out of power. Um, you know, they're, they're living on, on stores that they've acquired. Uh, Israel has been fairly effective in interdicting resupply via sea. Uh, but since 2005, they launched something like 12,000 rockets at the cities and population centers um, of Israel. And uh, Netanyahu and company have just determined that they're just not going to put up with it anymore. And until Hamas uh, backs down, I just don't see this, uh, this ground offensive uh, ending. It, it, Hamas has said that this is this is an initiative that they're going to continue right. to the death, but you're talking about the death of hundreds of Palestinian civilians. No, uh, no we're not. Why? Not, not by default. It depends on how they behave. So the Israelis have been very methodical in, uh, in signaling, warning of various either buildings or neighborhoods, 
that, uh, that a particular attack is coming against, uh, against the Hamas targets. Uh, Hamas has intentionally uh, put all of its arms caches um, in the hospitals and in schools and apartment buildings. There's observed rocket fire out of apartment building windows. Uh, they move uh, military resources via ambulances packed with kids. Uh, so, you know, they have intentionally used uh, their human population to guard their military capabilities, whereas the Israelis are using their military capabilities to shield the civilian population. So it seems to me Israel has gone to great lengths to warn civilians to get out of the way going after military targets. Carl Tubin. They've warned, they've dropped leaflets, they've done everything they can to clear out. And Hamas has said to the people, stay in your homes. They want the people to be killed. They want to be able to show pictures to the, to the whole world, especially the Arab world, of people dying and people dead. Yeah, the best line that I've heard thus far Dan on, on this, it was that Israel uses its missiles to defend its people, whereas uh, Hamas uses its people to defend its missiles. But is that, I have got a question. Bob Hines. I've got a question for Dakota. Do we, do we have any feel or does anybody understand what the population itself thinks? Are they, do they feel themselves to be prisoners? more or less, of, their, of the Hamas government? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag, and that's not to equivocate on the issue. There are some who want to see this uh, stop. They see uh, the chance for a better life and, and robust economic commerce, you know, and jobs. I mean, all the things that we would think are rational, but there, then there are others who solidly back Hamas because they're true believers in that particular way. So um, if you go historically, when the Fatah was established by Arafat back in the 70s, it was the dominant kind of sub-political party uh, that, that uh, buttressed the, uh, the Palestinian Authority. Hamas is much more aggressive, much more violent, basically pushed them out of Gaza. So Hamas is the leading power in Gaza, where Fatah is leading power in the West Bank. And uh, Hamas just seems to dominate the political landscape in that part, regardless of the population. But uh, Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I was thinking about Bob's question about whether the people in Gaza feel like they're prisoners. Yeah, they do feel like they're prisoners, and they have felt that way since way before this particular uh, offensive and counteroffensive occurred. We, uh, I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Israel and what they're dealing with in the world. Israel does not have clean hands uh, in this enterprise or in the history uh, of, of this conflict. So. It's important to remember that that uh, that Israel itself and 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 Netanyahu himself are are not are not innocent of aggressive and provocative acts uh, from time to time. Not least of all recently, when the three teenagers were killed uh, and and the Israelis arrested uh, on the West Bank. Uh, according to reports, several hundred individuals. Now, does that warrant 2,000 rockets to be shot in? No, I'm not saying it does. Does Do the, do the rockets, which weren't, were, were, were dangerous, they weren't killing people, they were doing harm, did that warrant all of the, uh, uh, the this massive invasion? Um, it, it's, it's hard to argue that when you're under attack, you shouldn't uh, be able to defend yourself. But it's important to keep the total context. 
uh, here in, in thinking about uh, who's right and who's wrong, and, and no one has clean hands here. Carl Tuvin. Let's remember that these rockets have been going into Israel for years. <clears throat> A constant rain of rockets are going to uh, lower Israel, and now they, now they have rockets that can go all the way up. <clears throat> I was convinced that Netanyahu did not want to attack uh, <clears throat> Gaza, that he wanted to work something out. <clears throat> they, had a, they had an agreement fostered by Egypt. The Israeli parliament and the Israelis went for it. Hamas did not. And that's when they, they were forced to, to do the attack in order to stop the bombing. And that's what they really want to do, to stop the rockets. Congressman Al. I've been puzzled by this whole Mideast thing forever. <clears throat> Someone once said that, uh, that trying exactly the same thing and expecting different results was a definition of insanity. Both sides, everybody involved, has been doing the same thing for years and accomplishing none of their goals. And this would include Israel, who simply wants to be left alone, and it hasn't been able to achieve that. Would it be outrageous to suggest that uh, most of the leaders of uh, the, the Mideast are insane? Denise Krupp? I listened to the back what we talked about a few minutes ago, and that's the discrepancy in the number of deaths. I mean, when you're looking at, I think, between 25 and 30 Israeli soldiers that have died and 300 Palestinians that have died, the real politic is, of that is that it doesn't look good optically. And, and you're, given the situation that is occurring, maybe just 100, 200 you know, miles from that area, that emboldens other people to say, maybe we ought to be joining forces with what's going on in Palestine. But, but, and that's a concern to me. Right? Alan Moore. There's another dynamic that is fascinating to me about what's going on in, throughout the Middle East now, and, it, and it's important to remember. Just a few years ago, most other Arab countries made the, the Israel-Palestinian issue a prime issue for conversation, for advocacy, for, for financial support, for activity, that is no longer true ever since Arab Spring. The focus inside these neighboring countries is no longer Israel versus Palestine. If you look at what has occurred just in the last few weeks, who's saying what? Most of the neighboring countries are not speaking out. Now, why is that? Because in the aftermath of Arab Spring, the focus in these countries is now internal. It's Sunni versus Shiite, and that swamps, completely swamps, like a tsunami, the pre-existing interest in the Israeli-Palestinian fight. And that's got interesting implications down the road because Hamas and the Palestinians, who used to enjoy a lot of financial and moral and rhetorical support from the region, are now looking around saying, hey, guys, how, where's, where's the money? Where's the help? And those other countries are saying, yeah, yeah, we hear you, but we've got bigger problems now. Well, that brings up a good point here, Dakota Wood. Uh, two things. Number one, 
It seems to me that the one silent party in all this, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, has pretty much been handcuffed because of the situation that Alan Moore is talking about. The fact whereas traditionally Syria, traditionally Iran, traditionally even some of the factions in, East, in Western Iraq would have been providing some sort of either financial, uh, human, or equipment support to a Hamas launch into Israeli territory, that seems to have gone away. The first question is, where does Mahmoud Abbas actually fit into this? Has he actually been neutralized in this situation? Well, yeah, he has, because Hamas uh, doesn't cotton to the idea of drawing any kind of negotiated settlement with Israel. So uh, Fatah and, uh, and uh, Abbas have both agreed to some kind of uh, you know, reconciled position um, uh, Hamas doesn't want anything to do with it. It's an all-or-nothing gambit for them. Does this put does this put Mahmoud Abbas in an even more difficult position as far as being the head of the Palestinian Authority? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they, they bounced uh, Hamas representatives from uh, the, from the Palestinian Authority government because they were just irreconcilable. Really, Dan Lipner. Well, actually, I just wanted to ask a further question sure. on the the uh, relationship between Israel and distinguishing between Gaza and the West Bank. Because throughout these conflicts, the West Bank seems to have been silent. So if you can give a little more background on exactly what the relationship is with Israel and the West Bank right now. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually pretty good. I mean, um, I think part of it is, is what is surrounding each of those respective areas. So on the other side of the West Bank, you have Jordan, which has a positive relationship with Israel. Um, uh, there isn't a lot of arms that flow you know, through Jordan into the West Bank. It's, you know, it's uh, economically uh, better connected and all. And it just happens that Hamas uh, took root in Gaza. Uh, it received a lot of support through the tunnels from the Egyptian Sinai into Gaza, as well as uh, various uh, shipborne uh, traffic as well. So there was just more opportunities uh, for an extremist element to kind of grow and to, uh, and to generate itself and then to, to fundamentally take root. And there were these differing ideologies between Hamas and, and, and Fatah uh, on how they would approach the issue. And uh, Hamas is just, again, irreconcilable, and it just has this a very extremist position. And I guess a final comment on this, I think it's a lesson learned, well, maybe not learned, but certainly an insight to be taken, that when any of these regimes uh, give room for an extremist, ultra-violent faction to take root and to grow, they'll see this kind of problem. We've seen it in some of the other countries but, in the region. But Dakota, one thing that strikes me in, in seeing all this, you know, we, 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 we've seen... Uh, We've seen Hamas jump in full bore through Gaza, and the IDF and the, and the Israeli government has been focused on Gaza City and, and, and the internal uh, regions around the Gaza Strip. Traditionally, it has always seemed to me that Hezbollah would have taken full opportunity on this, that we would have started to see rockets coming out of southern Lebanon. That has not been the case. Why has Hezbollah taken somewhat of a sidestep in this situation and gone almost hands-off? Yeah, I think they're seeing the seriousness of, of the Israeli government, uh, that they just aren't, they're not going to half-step this, and they're very serious about uh, taking the fight to whoever's going to chime in. So there was a disrupted supply chain from Iran through Syria 
into southern Lebanon. Right. Kept uh, Hezbollah, you know, well armed. Uh, their inventory of rockets is, is is extraordinary. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of medium and longer range kinds of rockets. Does, so I think they're just reading the Netanyahu government correctly that it would be an all-out war if they were to try to take them. Does the ISIS situation in Syria and northwestern Iraq take away from not only Hezbollah's ability to get aggressive with the Israelis, but also Hamas in this situation? Well, I mean, you know, again, uh, back to the comment that was made about the difference between Shia and Sunni factions. So you have ISIS, um, which um, uh, is not uh, of the same kind or ilk as the rest of these groups. So you do have uh, ISIS, radical Sunni, Hezbollah, which is a more radicalized Shia element. They're not going to play well together. Uh, Iran is very concerned about uh, the encroachment of ISIS uh, into uh, western and central Iraq. Um, even Saudi Arabia is concerned about the Islamic State because of the radical element that they represent. I mean, these are guys that just do not countenance any kind of a secular government that if it isn't the writ of, uh, of uh, Sharia or, or Sunni laws interpreted by either factions, um, then it doesn't have any place. Denise Krupp. Well, I actually almost answered the question I was going to ask about Syria. You know, the Syria was the one that was funneling either, you know, through one faction or another, the Palestinians. And do you think because of what's going on in Syria that not only are they looking at what the Israeli government is positioning themselves for, but they're also looking at what's going on in their own country saying, saying, maybe we want to hold some of the guns back because we may need them in our own house. Right. You know, it's kind of like uh, Hitler's tragic mistake you know, from his point of view of deciding to turn on Russia, right? I mean, how many fronts do you want to have? in your war and how many resources do you have to wage any, wage any of those fights. So I agree with you completely that it's probably more of an internal focus on Syria. They've got enough on their hands right there. Uh, you just don't want to spread what limited resources you have into the theaters. Carl Tubin. Yeah, I have a, <clears throat> I want to ask you a question as far as Abbas is concerned. Uh, I, I kind of had the feeling that Abbas was not saying very much about this because in his mind, it's okay let them knock out the, let no. them knock out Hamas, let them uh, defeat them, and then there's a possibility that the, the uh, Gaza would come back into the, fully come back into the Palestinian Yeah, and I, I wouldn't dismiss that out of hand. I mean, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, uh, what's interesting is, is, I mean, even in the West, but, but especially in the Middle East, there are layers upon layers of calculation. Uh, what is my particular position relative to my competitors' position? Uh, alliances uh, and loyalties and affiliations can shift depending on who appears to be strong. So I think it's completely possible that if you see the Israelis actually working on your behalf, uh, wittingly or not, you know, to take down one of your chief opponents, why not let them at it, you know, and 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 knock back uh, Hamas? And that could that could very well be a Hezbollah viewpoint as well, you know, that if you have Shia versus Sunni, you see uh, Hamas very radicalized, very violent, um, and uh, and they brought on this fault, this attack. Just let the Israelis have their way with them. And then you see where the pieces lie afterwards, and everybody repositions according to their interests. Alan Moore? Yeah, it, it's, it's the classic, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And uh, at least for the moment, um, uh, 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 two comments. One, Hezbollah, uh, which under different circumstances might have decided, oh, let's, let's be provocative up here. They have their hands full in Lebanon with Syria, with hundreds of thousands of refugees, 
this is this is occupying the attention. This and the and and the, the Sunni Shiite divide uh, of the neighbors. One, one comment about about what's going on in Gaza. It's interesting. There are three different kinds of tunnels that exist down there. The ones that that connected Egypt to Gaza have mostly been been shut down in, in the last couple of years. That was a supply chain from Egypt into Gaza. And with events in, uh, in Egypt as they were, the Egyptians decided to, to shut the supply chain down. You got two other kinds of tunnels. You got tunnels that, that are devoted to senior Hamas leaders. So every Hamas leader and his family and close associates uh, has access to some kind of tunnel system, which is mostly a security system. Neither of those are the main targets of what's happening now. What's happening now is these, this extensive array of tunnels that lead into Israel. Some of these things are extraordinarily sophisticated. They can be uh, a, more than a mile long. They can be 60 to 70 feet underground and pretty wide, and you can bring a lot of stuff through these things. It's hard to see now that now that Israel is inside Gaza trying to systematically destroy, identify and then destroy these tunnels. Um, yes, they they want you know they're going they're, they're not idiots. They're going to be supportive of ceasefire uh, proposals. The question is, given what's happening on the ground, do they want a ceasefire right now, or now that they're in there? with thousands of people destroying tunnels, do they want to stay and, if you will, finish the job or get much of the job done, or do they want to back out? I'm guessing that not necessarily wanting to go in there and have uh, and, and lose people and, and be accused of killing lots of civilians, uh, which does occur for reasons we've discussed, when they see that the rest of the region is not up in arms, angry at them, and and realize they're making some progress, it's uh, it, it creates some interesting uh, uh, dilemmas for them on what they really truly want. Well, I want to talk a little bit, you know, talking about the civilian casualties. Also, one of the things we have to look at has been the success of the Iron Dome system over Israel, the anti-rocket defense system that the Israelis, in cooperation with the American government, put into Israel about about six years ago, Dakota. Right, yeah, it's uh, helped the U.S. funding, but this is homegrown out of Israel, yeah. So we, when, we look at, when we look at the number of casualties civilian in Israel, we're literally talking low double digits. When we look at the number of casualties, Iron Dome has been relatively successful, but Israel's not been unscathed. One of our associate producers, Yerden Kakon, her uncle lives in, in the area in, in uh, southeastern uh, Israel. Just today, a rocket was launched and hit inside. Can Iron Dome sustain a sustained attack by this Hamas rocket offensive? Yeah, I mean, you, you can overwhelm any defensive system by salvo fires, so... Um what Hamas has been doing is been firing medium and longer range rockets at uh, Tel Aviv and some other population centers. I think this year alone it's somewhere around 350, 400 uh, or so just this year. So if you want to talk about the potential for civilian casualties, if any uh, meaningful percentage of that had been able to make it into the cities, the casualties would have been horrific. So what Iron Dome does is it tracks the incoming trajectory of around 
if it's going to land in a harmless area, the desert, for instance, then it doesn't waste a munition to try to, to knock it down. Only if it, if it calculates that the rocket is going to land in a populated area, and it usually fires off two rockets to maximize the chances of interception, they've been better than 90% successful. So it depends on the strategy uh, employed by Hamas, whether they decide to target, let's say, a specific sector of Tel Aviv, and they would maybe ripple fire 50 of them, uh, they would probably have a better chance of causing some meaningful damage. Does, so, in, in, in talking about the IDF as well, uh, when the ground, right before the ground offensive, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu activated 40,000 IDF reservists, reservists Israeli Defense Force reservists. It has been broadcast by a couple sources today that Netanyahu is talking about activating another 25,000 reservists to support the offensive. Is this a matter of Netanyahu having to go deep into the back to sustain? Is he looking at this as a long-term offensive? Or is this just a matter of, you yeah, know, think, we're going we're to barrage them with everything we got? No, I think they're calculating the response of Hamas. So if, if Hamas decides to continue the fight and it becomes very nasty, then you need, you know, replacements. Uh, you need uh, to relieve frontline forces, you know, kind of been chewed up for a bit for several days or a week or so and replace them. With can the modern-day IDF sustain a long-term yes, offensive? They can. they can. Especially at, at Hamas, yes. Dan Lipner. Uh, well, actually, my question was more at, uh, going back to the uh, internal versus external politics for Israel's neighbors, that Israel had been a straw man propaganda tool for its neighbors for years, that blaming the poverty on your po population is obviously because Israel exists. Yeah, I agree so, completely. So the question is, and it's been a while, outside of Al Jazeera, we don't have much access to uh, local Arab press. I'm curious whether or not the, the local Arab press, other than other than Al Jazeera, how they've been covering this and have they actually been, shall we say, more objective than traditional they've been on? Yeah, on it's actually, real... they've been doing a pretty good job, from what I understand. It was, it was viewed as kind of a mouthpiece of extremist elements, but it's mm -hmm. been more objective uh, in the past couple of years. And, uh, and everything I'm reading, from what I understand, is Hamas is really out there by itself. So if it wins, it wins big. Uh, like Islamic State did, and that you know it carried the fight against Israel. But if it lose, it's going to lose big as well. well. And that could that be the lesson that we've now learned after all this time that Israel's neighbors, honestly, for the Arab street, could have cared less about Israel's existence, absent the propaganda that was being held. Yeah, well, I think they're concerned about success of an extremist element, like they've seen the success of the Islamic State in Iraq. So uh, the uh, the, the monarchy in Jordan, very concerned about extremism. Uh, the monarchy in uh, Saudi Arabia, very concerned. Uh, General Sisi in Egypt uh, kicked out the Muslim Brotherhood because, you know, they were concerned about extremism. So I think all of these countries are not focused on Israel as this great neighbor and somebody we want to have friendship with. They're, they're concerned about success of a hyper-militant extremist organization that if they were successful, that could bleed over into their own country. So I think this is a self-protective kind of response, and everybody kind of staying quiet. Congressman Al Swift. I think Dan's point is a very, very interesting one to explore. <clears throat> Let's say that uh, a fellow decides to have lunch at an oasis out in the desert and uh, accidentally knocks over a little uh, tube, and out comes a genie. And the genie said, you have one wish. And he says... I wish that Israel would disappear, and poof, Israel is gone. 
How long did you think it would be before we had peace in the Mideast? <laughs> Interesting point, Dakota. You want to take that one on? Uh, historically, uh, what that would do is remove any kind of a barrier, which is the great concern with the fracturing of Iraq, where you have some kind of barrier uh, buffer state between Shia and Sunni. So I think they would be at each other's throats as quickly as that smoke of that. So we would have we would have, we have trouble war. in in we'd have war, <laughs> which we've got now. I, I think so. I think I think his point your your point was that Israel being this foil is a useful foil for domestic political reasons in any of these countries. But if you eliminated Israel, it wouldn't do a thing to bring peace and stability to the Middle East. Bob Hines, Dakota, how much is there any way to to evaluate how much strength and uh, staying power Hamas has at this point. Uh, if they can keep an embargo on the influx of resources, um, if they've already fired, let's say, 500 rockets or so, um, last estimates I saw, I said they have several thousand uh, in the bunker. So that's what Israel's trying to do is find these, you know, caches of rockets, uh, close off the tunnels, and uh, push back Hamas from that border area and just completely knock them back. So I think if they wanted to, they could sustain the offensive for many weeks. Um, but to an earlier point, Israel has no interest in occupying long-term uh, Gaza because there's no win to that. It's, it would be uh, like uh, you know England occupying Northern Ireland again. It's just a no-win situation. Carl Tuvin. This is, this is to uh, Al's comment. Netanyahu, about two or three weeks ago, was in Germany. <clears throat> he went to the house where Hitler and his gang uh, <clears throat> planned the final solution. And there was a book to sign in. And he signed, Israel Still Exists. And, and um, uh, somehow or other, uh, Israel and the Jewish people have existed through 5,000 years uh, and all kinds of strife, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I hope that it, ha it, it keeps on. Uh, <clears throat> the, well, Just the, so I'm not misunderstood, I was not suggesting that know, that would be that. a good thing for no, no, Israel. I understand that, but it's just, that thought just came to my mind, yeah. <clears throat> and it's, it's something that is true. Denise Crap. Here's a quick question for you, in order to shoot, you have to have a weapon. In order to have a weapon, you need to probably have a computer or electricity. Has anybody ever looked at the cyber threat to the Iron Dome and what happens if somebody gets in and figures out how to hack that baby? Yeah, uh, two issues. Uh, one, it operates uh, independently, so each uh, protective battery is kind of its own thing, right? So it's not connected to like an internet-based or fiber optic or something like that. So it would be it would be hard, you would have to introduce some kind of malware directly into a firing battery system itself, and, uh, and they're just not going to let anybody get close enough to do that. The other part to that is um, that, that Hamas is operating in a more sophisticated manner uh, in two ways. On the rocket side, these are uh, pretty low-grade uh, point-and-shoot rockets. They're not accompanied by any kind of a surveillance and targeting system. Uh, if you've seen them, you know, they're made out of garages and basements. Uh, they set them up on kind of rails, and they just fire them in the general direction. So these are not guided munitions. Um, they do have, you know, some Brainiac skill sets, 
Um, Hezbollah, for instance, up north, I know it's a different group, but buried uh, proprietary fiber optic cable that enabled their offensive in 2006, thermal imaging, um, its own proprietary communications network. Hamas is not yet that sophisticated. Um, so it's a different kind of fight in Gaza than it would be against Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And uh, to Israel's benefit at the moment, their advantage, um, they have the advantage in technology. Um, and they're trying to use that for all they can. Dakota, let's look, let's look at, the, at the American response to this. Uh, there, there are some pro-Israeli individuals and groups that have been somewhat critical of the Obama administration for not truly going in full bore with 100% support for our great friend in the Middle East, Israel. Is, is that an unfounded uh, is that an unfounded assessment, or are we having to be overly cautious in how we openly respond to the situation in Gaza? Well, you know, unless an army is invading your own country, all of these policy decisions are judgment calls. You know? So it depends on your worldview, your domestic political situation, um, you know, your read of what's on the ground, the raw intelligence that comes into you as opposed to what we discuss around the table, you know, a challenge, right? Um, so, but, but the pattern of behavior has been that this administration does not want to get entangled again uh, in some kind of a large, prolonged, you know, operation in the Middle East. I mean, they've tried to get out of uh, Iraq successfully. They're trying to get out of Afghanistan. They haven't wanted to get involved in Syria. They certainly don't want to go back into Iraq. And so, uh, you know, we didn't want to get involved in Syria when the chemical munitions things came up. So they just, they have indicated that they have no desire to wade in to one of these Middle Eastern problems, right? And so the commentary out of our Department of State in the White House has been such that the two sides need to step back, that, uh, that the U.S. prefer to be kind of a facilitator of a dialogue where they negotiate a settlement. Hamas doesn't to give any indication that it wants to participate in that. So the criticism of the administration of not wanting to actually pick sides, I think, is valid. Uh, the question then is, is why doesn't the administration want to pick a side? And I think once you do, then there are obligations to follow through with that picking. Alan Moore. Yeah, I guess I would. I, it seems to me that we have clearly picked sides. Um, the question is, with what level of support and enthusiasm? Uh, it, it was interesting to watch John Kerry uh, on Sunday, where he did, I think, all five of the talk shows. Uh, and during one of the talk shows, uh, he was picked up, uh, not surreptitiously, but sort of accidentally, uh, talking to an aide on a phone, in effect, saying sarcastically about the Israelis, oh, yeah, they're precision targeting. Um, and he was being dismissive of the fact that, that so, there were so many civilian deaths, again, for reasons that that we understand. What the U.S. is trying to do is, is as always, but so governments do this, trying to have it both ways, trying to, to, to not have uh, pro-Israel folks question our support for the Israeli side. At the same time, um, uh, the, the, the truth is a little more complicated, a little more mixed, right. reflected by Secretary Kerry's comments. Uh, Carl Tubin. Well, I think, I think the president has spoken out quite a bit over the over this last week since this thing has started in support of Israel and in support of the fact that Israel has the right to react to people who are constantly 
sending rockets into their into their country. Right. The quote the quote that we saw in his impromptu Rose Garden speech earlier or late last week was if you launch rockets into your sovereign territory, you have the right to defend yourself. But but Carl, it, it seems though, and a lot of critics have said that there we're not using the full public uh, podium that the American government has in supporting our allies in Israel. Dan, you're disagreeing. Well, the question is, what could we do, or also, not only what could we do, what alternative does Israel have? So, I, I am not unsympathetic to the disproportionality argument, but when you have in excess of 2,000 rockets launched at your, at your territory, which I would think everyone around this table would agree, is a provocation. The question is, what is the response? As effective as Iron Dome is, um, just because you have a bulletproof vest, you allow somebody to keep shooting you un until one gets through. So the question is still that response. And as far as the, the administration being not picking sides, Israel seems to be doing just fine without us picking sides. We, we already send a great deal of military aid to Israel, and uh, to Alan's point, I, I, I expect that's what we're talking about as far as the taking sides, but a PR campaign isn't going to do this. Hamas has shown absolutely no desire to communicate, to actually come up with some kind of solution. I would, and Dakota, your, your military background, I would ask, what possible end goal, even assuming the best success, for Hamas launching these rockets, could they possibly hope to achieve that Israel is just going to go, oh, we're going to back off, we're going to cease to exist now, you, you, you sent 2,000 rockets at us? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and it's not like you're going to carve out half of Israel, right, with uh, with this offensive. So I think what they're trying to, to do, um, and I'm, I'm reaching here, is establish a dominant position within their faction and within Sunni Islam that they are a force to be reckoned with, perhaps taking a cue from ISIS, ISIL, IS, whatever name you want to give them this particular week. So uh, they're seeing, uh, again, the dramatic success of the Islamic State, um, who is held to an extraordinarily rigid view of their interpretation of the Quran, right? And, uh, and, and through that has, uh, has uh, reaped uh, the, these, these enormous gains. So it could be that Hamas just sees this opportunity uh, to make uh, inroads where they weren't able to before. All right, we're going to let that be the last word. We're obviously going to, uh, Congressman Al, one minute. I just want to point out that after all of this discussion, we're still back to where if you're doing the same thing and having the same effect, you are an idiot. Well, there's that observation. With that, we're going to let that be the last word. When we come back, we're going to talk about the tragic events that happened over eastern Ukraine late last week, the downing of Malaysian Air 17. We'll talk about that when we come back with special guest Dakota Wood from Heritage Foundation. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. 
wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Live, Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, we are switching gears right now. We're going to talk about the tragic events that happened last Thursday uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine. For those of you who don't know, last Thursday morning around 11 o'clock, a Malaysian Air Flight 17, a Boeing 777 with 298 souls on board, crashed unexpectedly in the eastern part of Ukraine. This area is largely known to be held by Russian separatists in conflict with Ukrainian government forces. Uh, after several hours, it became evident through American sources and through foreign ally intelligence sources that the plane itself was taken down intentionally by a surface-to-air missile. 
Uh, it now looks, through all the evidence that's been brought out through several sources, that a Russian-made book system, which is a long-range surface-to-air missile system that was developed in Russia, owned by the Russian military, had gotten into the hands of Russian separatists. Now the finger-pointing starts. On top of the fact that international observers, as well as international relief efforts to go and secure the victims' remains at the crash site, have been hampered by Soviet separatists, uh, I'm sorry, Russian separatist movement and forces in the area. It was not until yesterday that the Russian separatists allowed an international contingent to go in there, re- recover the remains of the victims, as well as try and recover the notable black box out of the cockpit. Today, it has been noted that the uh, international observers are reporting to several sources, including our friends at Bloomberg and our friends at AP, that the, uh, this, the, the crash scene has been contaminated, that damage, intentional damage has been done by those on scene. Uh, it was reported earlier by CNN that the cockpit had been intentionally been cut into by chainsaws by those on scene. It is a tragic event. Now the finger pointing starts. Last week, uh, within hours of the downing of the, of the aircraft, Ukrainian internal security released a tape of what are now known as Russian separatists who were on scene with this book system talking to members of the FSB, the Internal Security Services of Russia, as well as other Russian military officials. It appears that the book system that had gotten in the hands of these Russian separatists, in fact, did take down the aircraft. It is a developing situation. The UN Security Council has condemned the actions. The UN Security Council and the UN as a total body has, uh, has forced the hand of, of Russian President Vladimir Putin to allow an international investigation to get underway into the crash scene. The Russian media machine, that is Vladimir Putin, has now pointed the fingers at the Ukrainian government, saying it was the Ukrainian government that was responsible for any reason from allowing civilian aircrafts into a known fighting area to the Ukrainian government shot it down in an attempt to discredit the Russian government. And does he say how how the Ukrainian government got a hold of a Russian missile? It's Vladimir Putin. You don't need facts. Kind of like this show. Dakota Wood, let's let's, let's first talk about one thing. Number one, it, it appears that the evidence showing now that you had Russian separatists who somehow got their hands on this Russian long-range surface-to-air missile system with a ceiling of over 30,000 feet. 70,000 feet. I'm sorry, 70,000 feet. This plane, at last record, was flying somewhere around flight level 3003, level 30,000. This was in the sweet spot of this targeting system. How sophisticated is this system, this book system, that everybody's been focusing on right now? It's actually 1980s technology, although over time, you know, there are software upgrades, and you can put uh, more modern missiles on it and all that stuff. Uh, Congressman Al's point, it was uh, uh, actually in the Ukrainian uh, inventory, both in the ground, sorry, uh, the uh, Ukrainian uh, ground and air defense uh, uh, inventory. So uh, one possible thing is that Russian separatists were able to, to seize it when they took over, let's say, a Russia, I mean, a Ukrainian air base. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that actually Russian provided, uh, sent in, 
gave it over to the uh, Russian separatists to use, uh, uh, quite probably with Russian technical assistance, you know, an advisor or some kind of a training package that went in. Uh, possible, though, very unlikely that it was an actual Russian unit. So uh, the spook system um, is, uh, is, is in the inventories of both countries. It is Russian-made. Um, but uh, but it would not be surprising that it's uh, operational. But although 1980s technology is still a very sophisticated yeah, so system, this is not something that a couple of separatists no, could no, no, roll no. out of a garage and start lighting the candle yeah, that's on. Exactly right. It has a crew of four to six people. It's got a, a, an integrated radar. It's a phased array radar. That's so instead of the twirling kind of antenna on top or slaving it to some kind of a radar site, uh, it's a it's a tracked a tank looking vehicle with uh, rocket launchers on top. Uh, it has its own integrated radar. The radar picks up uh, whatever target you want, uh, switches over to a tracking and uh, targeting radar system, launches a missile. The missile then rides that return from the uh, acquired target until it gets within proximity to the aircraft, switches to uh, its own active homing system for the final 100 feet or so, and then detonates itself with about a 140-pound uh, warhead. So it, um, it's uh, ceiling between 70 and 80,000 feet. It's very effective. Uh, as Somebody there, uh, J saw in Jane's Defense Weekly that this system has a 93% success kill rate. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's uh, especially against a, a, a commercial target with no countermeasures whatsoever, no chaff or flares or any kind of a jamming system like a military aircraft. Uh, it's flying along an established commercial corridor. It's not taking evasive action. Uh, the missile at Mach 3 moves 1,000 meters per second. So if you're flying at you know, 33,000 feet or 10,000 meters, it's going to take 10 seconds uh, for the missile to go from launcher to uh, intercept. Uh, five minutes to set up for a shoot, two minutes for an engagement, five minutes to break down and move someplace else. So you can take out an airplane in under 12 minutes and be on your way. Now, there, there are some... Some are saying that this was just a tragic accident, that these separatists with right. this missile system had, in fact, six days earlier, taken down a Ukrainian military cargo yeah, lift. 26, right. Correct. Was this, in fact, just a tragic mistake, or yeah. what, was this, through all indications, a just an aggressive unit not knowing the, what they had in front of them? The communications intercepts that have been released to the public by the Ukrainian government and others indicate that the separatists knew that they were shooting at something and brought an aircraft down. Once it was identified as being a commercial civilian airliner, all traces of that, you know, uh, uh, social uh, messaging boards, uh, communications intercepts, tweets, I mean, all that kind of stuff was erased uh, from, uh, from, from the current board. So you can go back historically and pick it back up. So the indications are they thought they were firing at a military target, or they were just trigger happy and it said, hey, this is our space, nobody comes in. And so just in a fit of peak, you know, they decide to launch a missile, like a bunch of, uh, you know, teenage hooligans. Uh, and only later found out that it was carrying almost 300, you know, innocent civilians. So the indications are it was a tragic accident um, and not an intentional shoot down of a civilian airliner. Alan Moore. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some kind of metaphor for this. I was, I was reflecting on a, you know, a... a a drug gang that was trying to control a particular area and it had a teenager and it said, here's a thing called a grenade launcher. If you see some enemy coming by in a, some kind of a troop carrier, shoot at it. And along comes a school bus and this kid who sort of just learned how to shoot it 
shoots at the school bus mm-hmm. and blows it up. I, I, it, it's, it, it beggars the, the, the imagination to think that somebody would have it, this been part of a plan. Now, having said that, once it happened, President Putin had a choice to make. Try to get to the bottom of it. Remember, he was the one who first told President Obama. They were on the phone plane, together. I want to get to that. Went, yeah. That this plane went down. So he had, he had early notice and presumably had some level of information into what went on. He had the chance to say um, a horrible, horrible mistake was made here and heads will roll. But he didn't. He went all in on blaming Ukraine and then throwing out these other competing scenarios, crazy, crazy scenarios that, that had no, no, no uh, link to any information that was out there. I want to go back to isolating himself horribly as a result. Well, I want to go back to that because one of the things I want to talk about is there are some, not a lot, but there are some similarities, Dakota, mm-hmm. to the 1983 downing by a Soviet fighter of the Korean Airlines flight. Uh, One Korean Air was taken down by a Soviet MiG over over international airspace, over water. They had said that the airliner strayed into Soviet airspace and were making a point that nobody messes with the Soviet Union. So that was an intentional shoot-down, and I think they knew exactly what they were doing, but, of course, playing hardball. And that's what, uh, that's what Reagan took in the past for. Dan Lipner? Well, I want to disagree with calling this a tragic accident. And more to Alan's point about if you, if you arm a teenager with a missile launcher, what do you yeah, expect? Yeah, yeah. And the, the going to the larger strategic question and to this tragedy, what on earth were the Russians thinking? Arming these group of thugs with weaponry that can take down something at 70,000 right. feet. What on earth could that have to do with the, separate, the, the separatist movement, even on the best-case scenario? It doesn't make sense, that other than Putin doing a power play and not thinking it through. Well, the, the outcome for this seems catastrophic for the Russians. Yeah, I mean, Dakota. there is military value in that the one thing that the separatists don't have that the Ukrainian government does is air power. So whether that's attack helicopters or some kind of ground attack aircraft, which they do have, it is an advantage that Ukraine has, and they were increasingly using with effect against the Russian separatists. So a shoulder-fired weapon is only good to about 7,500 feet, uh, well below 10,000. I mean, there's a couple that, that range above that, but, but usually anything above 10,000 feet is fairly immune to ground fire. And if you're operating above that, which the Ukrainians would be, uh, you've got you know, free reign of your own airspace. So by providing the separatists with something that gets above that, uh, it would neutralize or at least counter uh, the Ukrainian government's uh, air power. Bob Hines. To follow up on Alan's uh, question, once, obviously, Putin knew a whole lot quickly. He just passed. You know that. Now, why was he so foolish as to defend what he knew was going to become a very embarrassing, even a stupid thing to do? Why would he make that kind of mistake? He's not a stupid person. He's not, but if you look at the recent polling, to the extent polling can be giving any credibility, he has at all-time highs in popular support within Russia. 
So if your audience, you know, your constituency is the Russian population and you're at historic highs, what's not to lose? I mean, yeah, but, but Dakota, what's what right? But to lose is his own credibility well, with the world. I'm, I'm not saying it's yeah. smart. I mean, but, I think it's a it's losing game. Game. Yeah. Term, but, yeah. but hold on. But Dakota, you're talking about a Russia today that has a, a negative economic growth, the, the, the monetary value of the ruble is just about better than that of an M&M, and on top of the fact that you're dealing with, you're just coming off the heels of Crimea, Crimea which some see as a shallow victory for Putin. Right. You're coming off of a very aggressive stance against American response into the Middle East. This does not make true political sense in the grander scheme on an international scale, Putin, Putin comes from a, a, a better mindset. Is, is this just a matter of he thinks he's that bulletproof? Yes, it has nothing to do with the fact that he thinks he's bulletproof. This is the game book that he has, and this is the game book he knows how to play. I mean, you're coming from this from the Western perspective of this guy must be an idiot by trying to hide something that everybody else knows is true. You've got Putin, who's got his own little inner circle, who knows that in order to get reelected and to stay elected, he needs to be the strong power man that the Russians like. If he falls back, he, lose, he loses face to the Russian people. The Russian people are very, very happy right now with what's going on. And when you start talking about you know, trying to dodge and point fingers, this is the historic Russian way. I mean, I, I was Googling a second ago the Katyn uh, Forest Massacre. I mean, the Soviets killed 10,000 Polish, blamed it on the Nazis, who said, no, it wasn't us, it was the Soviets, and the Soviets were denying it up to the 1990s. I mean, these guys denied. That's their playbook. Carl Tubin? Well, that's a, one of the points I was going to make is the fact that the Soviets have historically gotten away with lying. I mean, you know, Putin says uh, the, the Soviets come out with this thing yesterday or the day before. Oh, it was Ukraine fighters. They were above the, the jet and they knocked the jet down. And uh, which you know, which was a barefaced lie. Which all indications are today with the latest pictures coming from the crashing show not uh, bullet uh, fragments but but in fact true shrapnel that's indicative of a missile hit onto an aircraft at that flight level. I absolutely agree. Bob Hines. Well, it, it seems to me, going back to, to what Putin has decided to take the position, that what he's done is do something that the West has been unable to do. It's beginning to put some, some uh, backbone in some of the European nations. I suspect there will be some more um, sanctions, and I think it's very seriously. Think about it. Russia only has two things that they can sell, gas and oil. Now, you could say, well, they're going to, they're gonna, you know, that Europe won't do anything because they've got to have the gas and the oil. Well, I saw something recently that indicated that there, if, if, if Russia didn't sell them another gallon of oil or gas, they could get through this next winter. Now, okay, fine. So let's pretend that they decide to cut it off. So why wouldn't the Europeans, smarter if they were, cut off their financial ability? Well, Russia would, would in effect, starve 
in a cold weir, they'd have a lot of gas that they could use for themselves, but they would have nothing. Well, going I want to I want to add on to that. Think about that. I want to. Well, I want to add on to that. I want to add on to that real quick. I, I want to add on to that because there is a uh, there's an op-ed out of Reuters today that talks about following the money trail of Putin and his inner circle. Uh, the accusation is that if the if the Western world truly wanted to get into his skin, that we could have, we could use right now the same methodology that we used post 9/11 to go after his financial capabilities, freeze that much not unlike the way we froze Al Qaeda assets monetarily. In, uh, in, in, correct. Is, is, is that a tactic? Because, I mean, we're now swinging at the big bear right now if we do that. Is, what are the risks of going after Putin monetarily that way, that aggressively? Well, I, I, think, I think it is a game of reprise of geopolitics. I think Angela Merkel and company in Europe are seeing the reality that they just can no longer ignore of Vladimir Putin in Russia, and uh, and they're willing to take it. Even uh, even though that Russia is now Europeans' Exxon gas station. Absolutely, they, they see that they have no option because if they don't stand up now, then where does it stop? It will be increasingly dependent on. They're realizing that underinvesting in the, their own military security. Uh, NATO target is 2%. That uh, most of the countries are at 1.2, 1.3. I think only four. Uh, NATO members are above 2.0, and so they've got uh, minimal military ability. Their economies are completely entitlements-based, and they realize the error of that. Uh, they're dependent on uh, natural gas uh, from a historical enemy, and, uh, and it's not a good situation. So I think they're willing to put on their big boy bridges. But is the world, is the world ready to go they have, after? They have no choice. They have no choice. At, even, at the, even at the thought of, as some scholars think, this could be the beginning if we take that tactic? We have a second recession. We in have Europe a second recession in Europe, and we even start a possible new Cold War. Uh, well, I, th I think we won the last Cold War, and we can do it again. Wow. <laughs> Carl Tubin, yeah. then Dan Littner. First of all, you know, when this started, <clears throat> our president got on the phone with Merkel and talked about a lot of these things. Dr. Uh, your friend who trusts us so much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody saw yeah, yeah. Did Merkel know that, she was on, that we were on the phone with her? Excuse me. He, he, he started out with saying to Merkel, this phone conversation is only between you and me and not being copied or taken down. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> the, the other thing is, is that Cameron over the weekend came out with... Prime Minister a, David Cameron of Great Britain. Great Britain uh, with a, a powerful statement on this whole thing. And he asked the foreign ministers of all the European countries who met today, and I've seen no outcome of that, of that meeting, to really address these, these uh, problems. Um, <clears throat> the interesting thing is, is that on the one hand, we need to do this to the Soviet Union and to, and to uh, Putin. On the other hand, Putin has helped with, with Iran in rolling back of the, uh, the uh, nuclear thing. Uh, they, they've also helped with uh, China uh, and, and trying to get China and trying to get North Korea to roll back their nuclear thing. We haven't heard much from North Korea in the last eight months. Uh, so, you know, to a degree, we're trying to handle this problem, but there are other problems in the world that we have to take right. into consideration. Dakota. 
Well, I think it, it's interesting that we get ourselves into this position. So we decide to walk away from Iraq, as an example, uh, and we're gone for two and a half or three years. Um, uh, the president of Iraq, Maliki, decides to do what he did in, in estranging most of the population and stacking his own government and cutting off funding for the sons of Iraq and, and all these other things that created the problem that he now enjoys because there wasn't any kind of a positive or restraining or mediating influence uh, that we were able to provide if we had been engaged. So we, have, we, we pull out, we have no desire to get engaged, and lo and behold, Iran is more than happy uh, to wade into that mess and be more influential than the U.S. Iran has none of our interests at heart, but we've created an environment where a competitor, an enemy state, has more influence than we did. The same thing happened in Syria, where we created an environment where Russia could be influential with the Abbas government, right? Uh, we have decided not to get engaged heavily in the Pacific, and lo and behold, China sees a window of opportunity to be more influential than it would be, as people question the long-standing, steadfast, you know, loyalty of the United States and willing to take and shoulder the burden of being this stabilizing influence around the world. Dan Lipner. I, I was going to go with a different point. But as far as the United States shouldering the burden, um, I believe you already mentioned that our NATO allies are not shouldering their fair share of the burden. Mm -hmm. And as we, going back to the Libya campaign, where we asked for a very nominal lift from, the, from our NATO allies, that they were unable to even cobble together a handful of rockets right. to support the, right. <laughs> the support the rebels in, in Libya. Yeah. It was remarkable to me that we're now asking uh, the, our, our NATO allies to take a, a firmer stand on Russia. But going further into that, as far as the crippling Russia with financial sanctions, I'm just posing the question. Obviously, sanctions are the better move. However, are we all really comfortable seeing a financially starving, nuclear-armed Russia? How do we think the bear responds to that? If the sanctions take root, the Russians do not historically respond well to being backed into a corner. Congressman Al. Well, this might be a good point to bring up uh, John Kerry's observation that recently that he looked into Putin's eyes and there was nothing there. Uh, so if they help us here or there, it's because they're, they're helping themselves. Well, I want, I want to ask Alan, Alan Moore, you, you've, you've been around the international community in, in your career, uh, both as an administration official and, and, and in your term as, as a Senate staffer. When, when we look at, for example, Putin, this is a former... KGB official. He has ruled as president and whatever title he's given himself in the past three offices that he's held, as, uh, he's ruled with that KGB FSB playbook. This is something that's been effective for him internally. He's got a high ranking with millennials there, but is that enough to sustain him? Can he go head-to-head -head with the international community effectively, knowing that this guy's nothing more than an old KGB spook? You know, it, it, it remains to be seen. I, I think that he, uh, that he is still in a position as the, as, as the outrage grows. And what we're looking for, of course, from the Europeans is not some kind of armament because we know they don't have any, but we're looking for economic sanctions. And 
It's not easy if you're Germany and between 25 and 40 percent of your oil and gas comes from uh, from Russia. I don't know about these data that they can live through a winter, but one winter, it, let's assume it's true, which I doubt it's true for all those countries, but maybe they can move around, juggle around, uh, 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 put some extra layers on in the winter. Um, that, 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 that all of this is, is short term. Having said that, it would, would do, it wouldn't, it wouldn't cripple Russia, but it would harm Russia. And Putin, uh, along with everything else, he does care about his, at some level, about his standing with other countries. He desperately wanted to get, get into the, uh, to, to the G, then G7, that became the G8, now the G7 again. He's got some fear of being booted out of the G20. Um, these are trying to, these are civilized people who try to to to, to look broadly, having a policy for the for the the good of the world, and he he wants it all. He's got this hubris that's grown inside his country, being able to pull off provocative stuff and still have this amazing level of popularity, which probably in some ways blinded him and emboldened him to do some provocative things with the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is saying, oh, come on, those are lies. This is a mendacious, lying person we're dealing with here, uh, which is probably surprising him. I'll bet he's also really angry that this happened, and that, that even as he's trying to blame Ukraine for an environment in which this could occur, which is what I see him saying more than I think they shot it, I think it's, well, this could have happened, that could have happened. And besides, anything that happened, no matter what it was, has in its roots this very assertive and aggressive, aggressive behavior by, by uh, the, the, the new government in Ukraine. What I'm guessing is that as he watches the Europe come together, which, God help us, hopefully they do, um, in really meaningful ways, um, come together, or most of them come together and then pull the others in. Italy will be a problem, um, it, but, but and you don't want them to have veto power. Right. But, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if uh, Putin at some point discovers some mistakes were made by, by rogue, rogue military people Minions. Minions. Yes, yeah. who will be punished severely and... By the way, let's let us help pay for the damages. You know, we we talk about this. We were talking about the R- Russia shooting down Korean airline flight, which they, we knew that they knew they were doing. We haven't talked about the U.S. Vincennes, a warship shooting down a passenger plane that came out of Tehran. This was in 1988. This was a plane. This was just incredible mistake, given the fact that it was. U.S. military with with the the most some of the most sophisticated equipment available at the time, making this horrendous mistake in judgment. Now, we took responsibility. Of course, it was pretty hard not to, but since uh, this was a plane taking off that flew overhead and we blew it out of the air, a couple hundred people died. We took responsibility. We apologized. We paid hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and 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 it's not to say everybody got over it, but at least we, if you will, manned up. There's a chance that that given all the mistakes made so far, that Putin he's not just going going uh, kicking back a couple of vodkas or having a beer with one of his uh, regional governors, shooting some pool. 
Um, he is worrying about this and trying to figure out what, how bad is this? What do we do? Um, even as he is, he has completely failed so far to take on responsibility and leadership. Denise Kraft. I want to go back to, to Germany for a second. There was a, a really interesting Washington Post article a couple weeks ago and talking about Germany and flax. And it came in the context of the uh, World Cup. And, and uh, the Germans were saying, you know, in the United States you fly a flax. I mean, I'm looking at the United States flag right now, but we don't do that in Germany. And they don't take, or they don't do the patriotic and the overt patriotic um, steps that the Americans do. And, and part of the reason they don't is because of what happened during World War II. And there was a feeling within the German people that we shouldn't show pride in our country because of what we did. And that feeling permeated for many years. Um, and I think that's important now because Germans are beginning to fly their flag and are beginning to feel more um, patriotism. And just I bring that up because it, 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 it bleeds into the relationship that Germany has with the United States. For 40 years after the war, U.S. men and women were stationed in Germany. And still are. And still are, yes. But they're not to the effect that they were in the past. So you had a German population that wasn't sure how to feel about itself with Americans that were there and were telling them if anything happens, if the Soviets come, we're going to defend you. Now we have pulled out. And where does Germany stand? And I think that's, that those are some of the, the things that Andrea Merkel is, is trying to figure out right now because she knows we spied on her. She knows that she has some very interesting relationships with the Russians right now. And I'm guessing what, the, the, the political calculation she's doing is what will my folks do? What will the Germans, both the West and the East, do if we take strong action against the Russians? Will they support me, or will we decide to sit this out? Carl Tubin. Well, I want to make one point uh, yours, is that after Cameron made his, uh, his speech, he got on the phone with Merkel and the President of France, and they all together talked and probably decided that there should be an issue before the Council of the Finance Ministers. The other thing I said, let's not forget that it was Putin, Putin who decided that, you know, we're going to protect the Russians in the Ukraine. And he was the one who, who started off this whole well, thing. Yeah, let, I mean, let's remind ourselves. I mean, the, the whole idea of the Crimea had started because Vladimir Putin wanted to secure his national security assets on the Black Sea in Crimea, which arguably or not is a sustaining reason why you would not go into that region. It has since escalated as now Putin makes the comment that he is defending Russian nationalists from an overtly nationalistic government that has come to power in Kiev. Yeah, but the other point I wanted to make is that he, he armored these, these people. He sent the, the arms to these people uh, for whatever, and, and that's why he's in the – one of the reasons why but, he's in the pickle that he is today. I want to go to, back to Dakota because I want to follow up on that. Dakota, you know, when we, we, let's be honest. The, the new Ukrainian regime in Kiev is largely nationalistic. They are very Ukrainian-focused. They are pro-Ukrainian. Many of them are – adamantly anti-Russian. There have been reports coming out of various 
areas in the Ukraine, particularly those in the eastern half where nationalistic Ukrainian Kiev-supporting gangs have taken aggressive actions against Russian nationals who happen to live in the region. Does Putin have somewhat of a point of saying, look, this is not a Moscow versus Kiev. This is not a rebuilding of the Russian bloc. This is just me protecting those who are either Russian or sympathetic to Russia. Well, I think he's making more of it than what it is. And the Poroshenko government is mishandling a lot of things, you know, <clears throat> uh, making sure that just the Ukrainian was you know, the only language, Russia's, Russian's uh, language not allowed. I mean, there are a lot of missteps, uh, not as bad as uh, Maliki and Iraq, but, but certainly didn't make him any friends. So um, you can see a, a, a chain of events. Uh, not that one was predetermined or was intended to be another link in that chain, but once you start down a path, you can have a, a cascading series of events that feed off of each other. So when Putin saw an opportunity to make the move into the Ukraine, if you are a Russian nationalist or ethnic Russian in eastern Ukraine and you get no love from Kiev, you then start to think about what else might be possible. And so really it's the destabilizing of an order. And then these, these opportunistic um, moves by Putin to kind of help foment that because a destabilized frontier, instead of having um, a stable, solid, pro-Western Ukraine that could bring NATO up to the very border of Russia is a bad thing for you. But once you've broken that open, you don't know where that instability is going to go. And so people start getting killed, passions are inflamed, a sense of revenge or opportunism starts to take root, and things just spiral out of control like we saw in, in, in the northern countries of Africa, right? So um, I don't think it was an intended outcome. I think if you're making the case, you're Putin, that I'm just coming to the assistance of my brother, you know, ethnic Russians, Part of that is true, but also part of it is opportunistic. And you can worsen things through this behavior instead of stabilizing things. And I think what's on Russia's, Putin's uh, uh, blame sheet is worsening things where you could have helped contain it. Dan Lipner. Well, let me pose the question. Where else are there ethnic Russians that Putin can claim to go in to be defending? Um, I mean, this is a legitimate question. And while it's an overused reference, this is Germany going to Austria respect to protect ethnic Germans. Right. So how far do we allow this line to even be well, considered I an mean, in in argument? Yeah, I mean, there has been some traffic that's been picked up where the Russian equivalent, I think they, the Russians even use the German word Anschluss. I mean, it's this, you know, this expansion of Russian control of territory to kind of reclaim lost provinces or what have you. So whereas you might not have ethnic Russians in many other areas, especially contiguous to Russia, not every situation is the same. So you can cow the Baltic states into submission. You can try to reimpose a, um, an idea within Finland, you know, the Finlandization during the Cold War where they weren't part of the Soviet Union, but you didn't take any steps that might tick the Soviet Union off, you know. So each situation is unique in its circumstances, and he uses different tools to achieve what he envisions as being the strategic end. But I think in this case where you could have facilitated or brokered some kind of a negotiated settlement within Ukraine, maybe increased sovereignty, a pseudo-sovereign kind of um, you know, province within eastern Ukraine where they had more autonomy than they would have otherwise, as opposed to fomenting what is in essence a civil war 
and, and, and things can quickly get away from you. And I think that's what's happened in Ukraine. Alan Moore. Well, one of, the, one of the other things that's occurred, presumably, or that seems to be occurring inside the Ukraine is that, that, that now realizing what Putin might be willing to do is, is unifying the rest of Ukraine. Um, and it, 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 I'm sure it's created deep divides in the East, but it's pulled everyone else together like, oh, my God, he's even worse than we thought. The, the, the other point that I wanted to just toss into the conversation is that the, what we've seen happen in this episode is some of the, the, the risk of giving advanced arms to people outside of our control. You know, there's still talk about, arm, you know, there was once upon a time talk about arming moderate Syrians. And every time there is an episode in some in some part of the world where we don't want to put our own folks in, our own military in, but we want to give some kind of arms. We need to be careful ourselves what kinds of arms we're ever considering. We, we gave um, uh, shoulder-mounted uh, anti-air missiles to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, and they did a lot of damage to Russian uh, helicopters, and they had a lot of uh, weapons left over which uh, we then lost control of, and we still worry might show up somewhere at the end of a runway uh, in America. And, and in this particular case, uh, and, and I don't know what, what anyone was proposing in terms of Syria, and I believe this administration horribly mishandled uh, the, the, the run-up to Syria, but having said that, the, the argument that we, that we should uh, arm people is one thing. The kinds of arms, the details, is what really matters. And, and, and if you turn over, like in this case, a weapon that can knock a plane out up to 70,000 feet, and it's some ragtag guys that you don't control, um, that's not what you want to give them. And that's not what we want to ever be part of giving to folks that, that we may be sympathetic to, because once the conflict ends, once you turn over an arm and, and lose control over it, you uh, may suffer other unintended consequences. Yeah, we, we've got five minutes left in the segment, and I, I just want to touch on the going forward from here. Uh, Dakota, as of today, there are uh, international observers on the crash scene. The U.S. government has sent over NTSB to support. Uh, the, the U.N. Security Council has issued its condemnation of the actions and has called for Russian to allow access to the area by pushing the Russian separatists uh, to allow international access. Is there, with everything going on right now, is this situation enough to keep Putin on his heels, or is this a hiccup in his mind? Well, I think it's going to cause him to be circumspect in each additional step forward, that he's not going to fall back from his designs to, uh, again, have a more controlled and Russian-influenced frontier. So, um, uh, you know, it was a bad day for everybody concerned, not least of which the lives lost, right? But, but uh, he'll be circumspect in, in how much more aggressively he supports uh, these uh, separatists are on the road. Is this enough to at least begin talks of a possible ceasefire in the Ukraine? Um, I know. Um, I'll tell you, there's a couple of really good blogs to track this in detail, and reporting from on the ground, the people involved uh, indicates that, that, that so much blood has been spilled that it's almost irrecoverable, that, that uh, one side or the other is going to have to win by force. Um, uh, it might result in a fracturing of Ukraine with, uh, you know, again, an autonomous zone. 
if not in facto, a sub-country, you know, there in the eastern uh, eastern portion. But uh, the separatists aren't willing to reconcile with the central government. The Kiev government is not willing to, uh, you know, call a halt to their operations against them. And, and I think this is going to have to just kind of bleed itself to death like we're seeing in Gaza between Hamas and Israel. Very good. Hey, Dakota Wood, good friend. Always love oh, having great. your insight. Great. Thanks for joining us today. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have the founders of the Open Gov Foundation, uh, a, a new technology in a transparency in government organization that's dedicated to developing and deploying technologies that support every citizen's ability to participate in government. We're going to talk to them when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more once. back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're, uh, we're going to change tracks here for a second and talk about something that's near and dear to our hearts, at least to uh, Congressman Allen and Bob Hines, is transparency in government. Uh, joining us now is the executive director of a great organization that I happen to come across. Uh, we happen to be co-located in the same office space. But uh, uh, Seamus is the executive director of the OpenGov Foundation. Chris Burke is the lead developer and one of the partners at the OpenGov Foundation. Promoting transparency and promoting personal responsibility in the way you're governed, which is something that's near and dear to our hearts here on this show. Uh, first of all, guys, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Shelley's. Welcome to Backroom Politics. Uh, let's start off. Seamus, tell us a little bit about the organization and how it came about. Absolutely. Well, the OpenGov Foundation is a, uh, a fiercely nonpartisan nonprofit um, that builds technology that helps citizens participate in government and hold it accountable, like you said in the lead-in. Uh, what does that actually mean, though? Well, what we're up to is transforming democracy down to the words on the page for our digital age. Uh, if you go into any government, whether it's Congress, whether it's your local D.C. council, there's a lot of paper. There's a lot of rooms just like we're in today, back rooms. And citizens can't get at what happens there. But we have technology that can transform those processes and open them up to put laws online, to put legislation online, and crowdsource them. Let citizens access that information in the best, most modern way possible and do something with it. Now, those who work inside the, the digital age of government, we're familiar with uh, software programs like Thomas that comes out of the Library of Congress. Uh, we, we are familiar with... Um, the other digital outlets that come from different agencies inside the Beltway. What makes you guys different from, like, let's say, legislative tracking on your Madison program mm -hmm. versus what we know as Thomas? Well, Thomas is a great start now, and I think this is something to bear in mind. You know, citizens are really frustrated with what they get from government. You know, Congress is a 14, 16% approval rating. Congress is only successful on 1.4% of those bills you can find on Thomas. Something's broken, and it's not just broken on the outside, it's broken on the inside, too. Uh, you know, Congressman, you, you know what it's like to be on the Hill. You know what it's like to not have the tools that you need to get your job done, and that's where our approach differs. So we are software developers. Chris Burke here is our lead one. Uh, we treat users inside of government the same as we treat users outside. So we're building a Madison platform so that an everyday American can come and actually see what's going on in Congress, comment on it, suggest changes themselves. But on the backside, people inside of government can make use of that information and not get stuck in dead phone lines or faxes coming out the wazoo. So it's to make the process for a citizen to engage with Congress more efficient. But on the flip side, actually help those real people who it's easy to forget aren't faceless bureaucrats 
they're folks like you and me trying to get a job done, do their jobs a little bit better. Well, Chris, one of the complaints that I've heard, and, and I'm personally a user of Thomas, I can tell you right now that once you guys launch Madison into its full version, I'll probably be first one online using it. But when I use Thomas, it's not very user-friendly. It's hard to find exactly the terminology, the language. I mean, you literally need a PhD in information technology to use it. Was that part of the basis when you're developing the Madison system to help bring forward easy access to the legislation that governs America as a whole? Yeah, so I mean, Thomas is a good example because it does a lot of things right. Um, a lot of the stuff that we do, we have to stand on the shoulders of the people who publish that data. Um, this, the biggest thing that we're trying to do is to facilitate that conversation around the documents, um, around the policy. So if someone has to get answers to what's going on in that policy document, the best way to do that is reach out to the legislator or reach out to other experts um, who are also coming to converse around that policy document. <laughs> Was, was this a matter of getting the information out to the public or user-friendliness in finding it? So the, the original version, it was a matter of simply getting the information out to the public. Um, we started on the Hill um, in Congress, um, and it was actually centered around the fight against SOPA. Um, fight against? Against uh, SOPA. SOPA and PIPA. Okay. Um, you know, Seamus here uh, was, was, in, was in Congress, and uh, I worked for WebDunder at the time, and there weren't enough people being brought to the conversation around what was happening with those bills. Um, so what we did was we put them up online, and we let people come and talk about them, um, and it ended up being one of the strongest tools to, to table those tools. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Information begets action. If you can actually see what government is doing, it, it stimulates a reaction. Sometimes it's to call into a radio show like this, and I'd love to talk to some of your listeners. Sometimes it's to write your congressman. Sometimes it's to suggest a better way to achieve that legislative outcome. And the SOPA fight was, was really instructive. That's where it all began. I used to work for Congressman Darrell Issa, and he's a big technologist in Congress, and he's actually my co-founder at the OpenGov Foundation. Um, he stood up and opposed the Stop Online Piracy Act that had just at the end of 2011 alone over $100 million in lobbying and almost 1,000 lobbyists employed to push through these two bills in the House and the Senate, so on behalf of the, the content industry, you know, the Time Warner, the Comcast, right. the Disney. Um, who did they ignore? They ignored Internet users like you and me. Anybody who logs on to look at a YouTube video, anybody who has a company. So what we did is we simply took that backroom legislative process and we put it open on the Internet so that that expertise from internet users like you and me could come in and make the bill better and eventually stop it getting its track. So when, when we look at your board of directors, which is on your website right now, along with their, uh, Chairman Darrell Issa uh, being on your board, you also have former Congressman Tom Davis on board as a board member. What is their expectation out of all of this? Um, well, Congressman Issa and Congressman Davis understand all of those frustrations inside of government. They know what it's like to have hundreds of thousands of constituents telling you hundreds of thousands of different things at any given moment that they want. And no way to make sense or hide or hail or head of tails of head or tails of that information. Uh, but they also know that government can do a heck of a lot better. I think Congressman Issa and Congressman Davis, both in their time on the oversight committee, watched every day, hearing after hearing, waste, 
fraud, abuse, mismanagement, failed government programs, and ultimately Congress failing to get the job done for, its constituent, for their constituents, and said, look around. You can open up your phone and look up a receipt on what you spent at a ballgame 10 years ago, and you can't find how your congressman voted. That's absurd. And a lot of that failure rate of Congress, that 1.4% success rate, is to, has to do with that, is there aren't the tools inside of government to get the job done for constituents, so everybody ends up dissatisfied and frustrated. Chris, you know, when, when we look at this, I mean, just going off of your website, it looks as this is designed for the millennials, the IT-savvy young folks that actually have an interest in, an invested interest in how they're governed and finding information like this. But in the technology realm, how are you able to bring in the age groups of the baby boomers, the later Gen Xers who may not be as tech-savvy as the millennials that can use a phone to find the receipts from 20 years ago, like Congressman Al here. How do you get Congressman Al involved in the technology uh, campaign that you guys are driving? I can't turn my phone on. I know. I can't call you. Um, Yeah, so, um, you know, this this started um, all kind of out of nowhere. Um, The original version of this was built at a two-night hackathon inside Congress. and so, to be honest, the first version wasn't really something that, uh, that I would put my stamp of approval on, but we're doing a lot of work trying to figure out how to facilitate that conversation. Um, honestly, a lot of it at, at the moment is personal conversation, sitting down, here's how you use this. Um, a, a lot of tools trying to teach people how to interact with legislation online, because it's a very new realm. Is it real? Is it real time? The, the second that a strike through comes through, you guys are able to get it up there, and they can actually visibly see, as opposed to hearing on a thirty-second soundbite. There's a strike through on this. Yeah. Really? How is that? That is this through Library of Congress? Is this through your own research, or how does that happen real time? Um, so let me amend that. It, it's not real time as as in you don't have to refresh the page, but it is real time as in if you know that you're looking for these inputs. You get them as soon as the user posts them. And all of this is, is built in our own technology, and, and we host all of these. So we use information from the Library of Congress, but all the software is the stuff that we've built. Congressman, Congressman Al, you have a question for the I, folks from OpenGov. I, I think this is a very <clears throat> useful product. But one of the things I felt for a long time is that part of the problem of the people understanding what's going on is that they really don't understand how government works and what's going on and uh, and so forth and it seems to me that you almost need in addition to what you're doing and probably keeping them separate so that they, they don't mishmash together is uh, come elections talk about con- con- conventions versus the party choosing the, the nominees mm-hmm. and what does that mean in how the government can work. Uh, Bob and I, our, our special thing is, is gerrymandering because it really means that you're putting, the, the, the politicians are choosing their constituents rather than the other way around. And I think people need to understand that so that they can understand what you're showing on your tablet over there. Uh, it's, it's two different things, and it could, it could t- carry you off in a 
whole direction that you don't want to go. Well, let, let me follow up on that. But you might be able to do a two-part kind of thing. Well, let me follow up on that because Congressman Al brings up a very valid point is, you know, following the legislation is one aspect, but truly getting the transparency out of all government, whether it's the agencies, whether it's the commissions, or any other federal body, how are you guys bringing that aspect of transparency forward to the general public that might go on your website? That's a great point, and it, it's a full team in a full spectrum operation. Uh, legislation is only part of it. Laws are only part of it, mm -hmm. and we started there. We started with opening up the legislative process and opening up legal access with our America Decoded project, but all of government and citizens have a right to it should be open. That information should be the easiest thing to find and do something with on the internet today, but it's not. Uh, that's why we launched something called the Free Law Founders Movement. That actually just came out last week, and you can go see it at freelawfounders.org. But that's a collection of city officials from the bureaucracy, from the elected branch, and state officials, and civic developers like us working in software who've come together to say, we know how far behind government is, how closed it is, how, un how difficult it is to understand just the basic aspects of civics. We don't know what that answer is going to be, but we're dedicated to figuring it out and to not just sharing it in D.C., which is one of our partner cities, but to share it in every state and city across America. So one of the things I noticed in, in doing the research for your segment is you guys are looking at OpenGov not as the baseline for the Madison Project, but more so as an open gov movement. Talk to me a little bit about the movement mentality you guys are pushing. Absolutely. Well, this is a movement. It's a sea change. It's a whole brand new way of doing business. Think of the automobile movement. There, there is a sea change in technology that radically altered almost every walk of life in America. And it took a long time to get there. But you needed the car salesman. You needed the people driving the car. You needed the delivery trucks. We needed a whole change in our economy for that new way of doing business to take hold and ultimately work. That's what we're talking about here. There's some who focus on budgetary information and spending, the number side. We're focusing on the law and the legal side. But to ultimately cement this new way of doing business on the Internet, you need legislators and staff to one of the big areas that we hear complaints on here on the show and that we've talked about numerous times here in the three years we've been on the air is the transparency of the money trail. Are you guys involving the money trail as part of your movement? Not yet, um, except as, as it applies to legislative information. So what is the budget? Where is that money right now? And as the appropriations process move forward, how do those numbers change and attract going forward? Is campaign financing on the horizon? It is not for us. There are others who do that really, really well. Um, that's not where our focus is today. Alan Moore, question. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there, there are others who do it really, really badly. There are others true. True. Alan, Alan Moore, question yeah, for Open Gov. Two questions. For the, the, the first question, you were talking, you, you used this reference, a 1.4% success rate. Mm -hmm. what, what was that referring to? Of all the bills that have been introduced in this right. Congress, only 1.4% have actually made it through. And you think that's a meaningful statistic? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a garbage statistic because Why? because forever <laughs> members put bills in to score points. They know they're going nowhere. Now, I'm not saying that they have a, a, a meaningful success rate. I'm just right. challenging the use of that statistic. I don't think you help yourself with people who know what's going on when you try to build in importance into that. Well, let, me, let, me, let me put okay. that aside. Okay, that okay, aside okay. Because I have a more, I think a more important question, than it, but it sort of builds off of that. So, 
how do you decide what you're going to track? Because if I'm right and 95% of the bills that, are, that, that people introduce are done to score some points but not to, be, not to be a serious part of the discussion, and because there are thousands of bills introduced and the notion of spending a lot of time on each and every one would be a massive investment and a huge waste of time, and lots of people in the system understand what the maybe 5% of the bills are that might have some relevance, some chance. But I'm curious how you guys decide what you put into the system. I, I see with this one bill, it was, a, it was an interesting one because a lot of people who use YouTube mm -hmm. are, are going to say, whoa, wait a minute. Um, but that's not true with even a lot of the laws that might have a shot at becoming uh, it, that, that be, have bills that have a chance of becoming enacted into law. So I'm trying to figure out where you start. How, how do you build out yeah. um, and, and how big do you expect to get? Well, we, we go for Congress. We, we do, we're doing everything. So we don't discriminate on that. And, and you're right. Of that 1.4% success rate, there are a lot of point scoring bills. But if I'm a constituent, what we're doing is we're exposing that so that you, I don't, as a citizen, I certainly don't want my tax dollars going to pay the salaries of congressmen and staff who are putting forward point scoring bills. That's a waste of their time and it's a waste of my money. Um, and part of what Madison is doing is putting that up so you can actually see, hey, you know, my, there was a congressman who retired, I think, uh, from New Jersey who had been in Congress for 12, 14 years. I think his name was Andrews who didn't get a single bill passed his entire career. I mean, is that representing the interests of the people? Is that doing their business? I think there's a... I would say that's a not a valid question. Well, I, I, yeah, think, that I, there's, I think that there's a, an argument to be made there, but at the very least, you should know what that congressman is proposing, why, and how it's moving through the legislative process, if at all, if at all because that's what you need to hold government accountable. Fair enough. Dan Lipner. Well, and, and actually to Alan's point, and I'm also reminded of the, the Tip O'Neill line when, when he talked about Congress, that over his, his time in Congress, that the people got so much better, but the results became so much worse. And part of his attribution to that was that it was more players entering the system, not less, that you had more noise mucking up mucking up the system. And to the open government, which I am very sympathetic to, but the example you used with the online piracy, mm -hmm. at least the, the Netroots folks and people, the, the very informed uh, people engage populace, and at the Netroots I would not even remotely suggest are normal folks. However, they vocalized and organized through their already organized efforts in other realms to act on Congress. But I'm kind of curious as far as a populace that occasionally can't distinguish the what the federal government does, and the federal government does a lot, but there are lots of things that actually local government is affecting your life far more that people can't see into, that they have far more access to, and whether or not you'll be taking this to a more local level as well. That's where we're doing the majority of our work right now. And our, and our nexus is federal down to state, down to local. So I talked about the pre-law founders movement. Mm -hmm. That's Washington, D.C. Madison is deployed in the D.C. City Council. Uh, Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, and New York City. Um, those are the five cities that we're starting with, and we have done some work in Philadelphia as well. But you, it's amazing to see how that data 
translates from up on Capitol Hill down to how everyday Americans are living their lives on a day-to-day basis, because you're right. That's where most of the policy that happens that affects us. Where can you park? What do you have to do to start a business? Where can you send your kids to school? These are the things that local governments are working on every single day, and most people have busy lives and no way to actually see that, let alone be heard in that process. But also those same people will more likely complain to their congressman about where they can send their kids to school when he or she has no authority than going to their county council or school board meeting. So that kind of disconnect with the public's information. And I'm wondering if there's even a way of walking you through the, this is my complaint, where do I go? That's one of the, that's one of the starting points. So when somebody goes on the internet and opens up their search bar and wants to figure out where to go, if you don't have good data in a modern format uh, telling the user where to go, you're not gonna find the right answer and you're gonna end up on your congressman's page. So part of what we bring to the conversation is opening up information to things like Google so that you can actually find the right answer and find the right place to start before you even get engaged and find that answer that you're looking for. When, oh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, the other side of that and where OpenGov plays a big part is technology completely aside. Um, while we do develop technology, we see ourselves as kind of the middle. Um, and that's the reason that we're building this technology. What we're trying to do is facilitate the conversation between the legislators, between the experts, and those citizens who are who may not know where to go. Um, but the better conversations they can have and the easier it is for them to have those conversations with the people that know what, know what they need the answers to, um, the more informed they'll be and the easier they'll get involved. I'll go ahead, James. Well, that's what we saw with the Stop Online Piracy Act, is there was a lot of really complicated information in there that had to be unpacked, definitions, terms, all the government legalese that we're all far too familiar with. It's impenetrable. Well, when you have a, a congressman come in, as many of our con- official users did, or experts, like in a wiki-style conversation, you can define terms. You can break down, what does this actually mean? Can I look at the hearing video where they discussed where this came into the bill? And that's how you can use technology to start, not completely, but start answering those real fundamental civics and knowledge questions. So we, we've, got, we've got one more minute here real quick, and I wanted to ask you, when, when, we, when we talk about the transparency and government side, uh, is the main goal to try and make a more educated electorate on how they vote, on how they see that they're representative, and how their government works for them? Is that the bottom line here? I think our, our bottom line is to build a more informed and engaged uh, population in the United States and a more efficient and effective government from stem to start. So results and success for us are when a citizen can log on and actually see what their legislator is doing, first and foremost, but they can actually participate in that process. Um, once that is happening in every city and town in America, that's successful. How do they get involved? Go to OpenGovFoundation.org or tweet us at FoundOpenGov, and we can pitch in and maybe bring open government to your city. Fantastic, fantastic. Seamus Kraft, Chris Burke from OpenGov Foundation. Guys, thank you very much for joining us. Keep thank us you. keep us surprised. Let us know how it's going along. We'd love to we'd love to take a further look down the road. Uh, Chris, real quick. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, one thing to add there for uh, anyone in the DC area, we do have dc.mymadison.io, and you can go and check out some of the local uh, legislation going through right now. Fantastic, fantastic. Open Gov Foundation, thank you guys. Thank really you. appreciate you guys' time. This is our favorite part of the show now. we got seven minutes, so it's going to be real quick. This is Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the buzz, innuendo, and all the goings-on inside the Beltway and out. Congressman Al, tell me a story. <clears throat> Going back where we started, 
<clears throat> Excuse me. We started on our discussion of the Mideast, and I said at the beginning that essentially these are a bunch of madmen. And I think if we approach that problem more on the basis that we're dealing with madmen than kind of a typical international State Department kind of an approach, uh, we might get farther on that issue than we are just sitting around saying, now what are the madmen up to today? Uh, good point. Bob Hines, tell me a story. I think one of the most um, important things that have happened recently in international affairs is the fact that Europe, after the uh, plane, uh, plane shooting down, is beginning to see that uh, Russia is, is, is being led by a, a guy who... A madman. No, I wouldn't say he's a madman. I would say he's a, he's a, he's a KGB operative, and he is just pushing uh, for the Soviet Empire. The Russian Empire, whatever right. you want to call it. And I think it's very helpful that we are going to see, I think, a little bit of, of something happening in Europe, which will, in effect, try to say to Russia, we are not going to let you do this, and, we're, and unless you stop, we'll, we're going to push a little bit, and we're going to have some stronger sanctions. I hope it happens. Valid point. Carl Tuvin, you're reading a book. This can't be good. You've got literally a 30 seconds. Tell me a story. Well, I, I could talk about story. the bottom-margin trip of Jefferson, but I'll do that later. Oh, God, the, Lord. The, uh, <laughs> Sweet mother of God. The, uh, you're killing I, me, Carl. I don't want to embarrass you. The, uh, <laughs> the, the story that I, I, I want to... Not a story. The New Yorker yesterday came out with a uh, um, article on... The vice president, uh, uh, Politico, Mike Allen, had the whole thing on his uh, his website. Uh, uh, even though it seems far-fetched that he's way behind Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire and in, in um, Iowa, Iowa, uh, I, he's by all claims he's still out there thinking maybe. And I'm not sure how, what that's going to do or how that's going to go. It's going to depend on whether Hillary runs or whether she doesn't run, etc. I want a pink unicorn, too. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Four minutes left. Yeah, it, it's uh, re reflecting on the, the, the efforts of these guys to, to open up better information to government. Um, I think you're going to get a breathing. It looks like you've you're, you got an extended breathing space for the moment because... It looks like almost nothing is going to happen uh, here between now and the elections, particularly in the Senate, where where uh, our, our our good friend uh, uh, Harry Reid oh Harry Reid there he doesn't, is doesn't want any amendments to come forward to the Senate that would put any of his people on the spot, and uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, doesn't want to produce something that would take away from the Republican narrative that. The Senate is completely unproductive. When you put those two things together, what do you get? Unproductive. Nothing. Unproductive. Nothing for a while. <laughs> Dan Lipner, quickly, tell me a story. Well, continuing the open government theme, uh, I'm hoping that uh, the, the fine governor of Texas, Rick Perry, discovers that uh, without police powers, the National Guard that he has called up 
uh, to stop the flood of illegal immigrants. And maybe he mistook flood since uh, the National Guard is very good at making sandbags, but those sandbags will not stop the flood of illegal immigrants in Texas. That was your one-liner? Good Lord. Hey, uh, court in Virginia today dealt Obamacare, if you listen to Republicans, a huge blow. The reality is it's nothing. It's going to go to the Supreme Court. It was a split decision, a split verdict. And, oh, by the way, the Republicans didn't take all they want about ACA and how basically the ruling was if you didn't get your health care through a state exchange and you got it through healthcare.gov, you're not getting the subsidies. Guess what? It's going to go to the Supreme Court. So all the banter, all the saber rattling, it means nothing. Good Lord, people. Just get a clue. Hey, uh, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tuvin, Denise Krepp, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner. Special thanks to our special guest from Heritage Foundation, Dakota Wood. Thanks, Colonel. I am your host, Radio Justin Russell. We'll be back next week here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be is Shelley's. Yeah, that's true. You can follow us on backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on our Twitter page, at backroompolitics. Or you can email me, Justin, at backroompolitics, with your story suggestions or any comments. We'll see you next week, America. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details.